co-chairs of SNED this year are Carolyn Prowse, uh, an assistant professor in geography and planning, uh, myself, Aicha Tomac, an adjunct professor in global development studies and cultural studies, and our student coordinator this year is Dairon Perez of geography and planning. Uh, if you want to join the SNED listserv, please send a private chat message with your email address to one of the hosts, so Carolyn, Dairon, or myself. Uh, so the floor for today, I will first present a land acknowledgement, followed by a recent statement from Global Development Studies faculty, then introduce our speaker who will talk about her upcoming book uh, for around 44 to 5 minutes, then we will open up the floor to our audience for your questions. Uh, the chat is currently open to everyone. If you experience any sort of virtual harassment, we will limit the chat immediately and your questions and comments will be received only by us as the hosts. Um, I believe it is really important for me personally as a first generation settler to acknowledge that SNED is hosted by Queen's University, which sits on the traditional territories of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy and Anishinaabeg Nation. I also would like to reiterate our commitment as SNED to boost the voices of scholars, activists, and artists who study, work, and create towards dismantling white supremacy and settler colonialism. Uh, towards that end, today, I would like to share a statement from Global Development Studies faculty to Oust family in Ottawa. I want to thank Cheryl for allowing me to take this time to do so. Quote, Last week, eight armed police officers forced open the door of an Ottawa apartment with a battering ram and threw in a stun grenade. They were looking for 20-year-old Anthony Oust, who had been living there with his family on bail since March of this year. Within seconds, Anthony fell 12 floors from the apartment and died. He was there with his younger sister and brother, his girlfriend, his 92-year-old grandmother, and his stepfather, who described the scene as a war zone. His mother was on her way home from work, having been informed that her son's ankle bracelet had sounded. His brother, Raymond Oust, is one of our students in Global Development Studies at Queen's. He wasn't home at the time. The story is singular in its trauma, but it is hardly unique. It's part of a systemic pattern of anti-Black and anti-Indigenous police violence in Canada. No knock warrants, also known by the euphemism dynamic entry, have been overused on Black and Indigenous people and households. In February 2020, an Ottawa judge ruled that no-knock warrants violate Canadian charter rights. They continue, with tragic results, to be problematically used as a default by the police in drugs and guns cases. The Ontario Human Rights Commission interim report on anti-Black racism in policing, released in 2018, revealed higher incidents to deaths of deaths of Black people by police in Ontario. Raymond Dows told a CBC reporter that he wants police to, quote, start weaving young men of color as humans, not threats. His statement reveals the stark disposability of Black bodies in our settler colonial state. As university professors who teach this generation, we add our voices in protest. We stand with our student and offer support and solidarity to the Oust family. And to this statement, uh, I would like to add our speaker, Cheryl Thompson's words, quote, Black Lives Matter isn't just a hashtag, it is a battle cry demanding to hashtag see us 
as existing in the same spaces that you exist in, and not just over the summer, but all year round. Unquote. Uh, Dr. Cheryl Thompson is an assistant professor in the School of Creative Industries, Faculty of Communication and Design at Ryerson University. She has published commentaries in the New York Times, Spacing and the Conversation. Her other books include Beauty in a Box, Detangling the Roots of Canada's Black Beauty Culture, which was published in 2019. Dr. Thompson joins us today from Toronto. Thank you and well, welcome, Cheryl. Yes, thank you so much for that introduction. Um, I'm just gonna share my screen. And I will say one of the reasons why I think it was important for you to read out that statement, because believe it or not, a lot of what I'm going to talk about today has a lot to do with the idea of, um, you know, the types of black bodies that we celebrate, right? And there's and this, the sort of the pressures that are on, especially black men, to appear in public a certain way. To, and, and the uncle trope that I'm gonna talk about really fits into that narrative. And it fits into the narrative, especially in the contemporary around issues of social justice and policing. So thank you for that introduction. Um, just to remind everyone again, this is the book, this is what it looks like. It's currently available for pre-order on all the major um, book selling sites. And you know, I used to be really horrible at self-promotion. Now I realize who better to promote yourself than you? <laughs> at least you know what it is that you're promoting. So this book aims, as it says here from the blurb, to explore the journey of Uncle Tom as a literary character. I'm sure most of you, or if not all of you on the call, are very familiar with Harriet Beecher Stowe's 1852 novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin. So in this book, I trace that character through the decades, through the centuries, right up into the present. And you can see at the end here, I grapple with some of the most notable 20th century representations of black men, such as Bill Bojangles Robinson, who was in all those movies with little cute Shirley Temple in the thirties, all the way through to Bill Cosby, and then all the way through to Clarence Thomas Obama. Um, I talk about the contemporary as well. And so I wanted to start with that as sort of like, here's the book. But now what I what I always do <laughs> is I like to take people back in time. And so before going back in time, we're actually going to address the present, because there's two incidences that I'm going to talk about that actually are not in the book, but it points to the, the relevancy and the timing of this book, because it's really speaking to what's going on in the present moment, especially around issues of social justice. So many of you might be familiar with this actor, Terry Crews, who is in the, the cop show, which is a comedy, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And so in June, he defended his tweet that was where he used the term black supremacy in relation to Black Lives Matter. And it was response in a response to George Floyd's um, tragic murder um, by Minneapolis police. And so what does he say in the tweet? The first one is he says, defending white supremacy without white people creates black supremacy. Equality is the truth, like it or not, we are all in this together. First of all, there is no such thing as black supremacy. So that in itself is, is extremely problematic. But then he goes on to invoke the Uncle Tom na name. He says, any black person who calls me a coon or Uncle Tom and or Uncle Tom for promoting equality is a black supremacist because they have determined who's black and who's not. And that 
quote that he put out there on Twitter speaks to what this book tries to unpack, that there's an idea of a line that gets crossed as it relates to loyalty. So there are black people who are loyal and black people who are disloyal and that there is some way that that we're policing the boundaries of what this loyalty actually is. And then the second case is, of course, Daniel Cameron, who is the um, uh, attorney general of Kentucky involved in the Breonna Taylor um, case and the no conviction or the no charges to the police who were involved in her tragic murder. And then here you have an example again of a black woman on CNN invoking Uncle Tom to refer to his inaction on behalf of black community. And I think these two examples that I'm giving you here really set the, the contemporary tone of what my book is actually about. And what my book is trying to do is really point to, because in this same article that I found on this website, American News, they tell you it's a literary reference to the protagonist in the anti-slavery novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin, by abolitionist Harry, Harriet Beecher Stowe. However, the character has become synonymous with servility and self-hatred. And so my book addresses exactly what you see in that quote that I just uh, put as a screenshot. It talks about the origins, but then it tries to say, how is it that this name, this person is now synonymous with something very different than its origins in the novel? Like, how did we get here, essentially? That the name is like being invoked in these kinds of instances when we register the name as coming from a 19th century novel. And so my book tries to tell this story. And what it also does is that it asks a series of questions. Like the first question is, um, why is Uncle Tom still here? <laughs> why are we still referring to this person in the contemporary? What purpose does he serve? Like, when is he being invoked? And typically in the contemporary, it's often being invoked from these very high profile um, black men who make statements that appear to be anti-black community, but instead tend to be serving um, either an institutional power, a corporate power, or just themselves. And then also, one of the other questions that I try to explore is why is it now hurled at black men by other black people? Typically Uncle Tom is not a word that a white person would throw at a, at a black person. It's not a racial epithet in that sense. It's typically another black person referring to another black person as an Uncle Tom. And then, you know, what power lay at the origin story? So the origin story is Uncle Tom was a martyr an enslaved martyr who was then taken up as a hero. That is not how Uncle Tom is viewed today. And so Uncle Tom's Cabin, if we go back to the original text from 1852, published over two centuries ago, is still known today from people of different ages, classes, different locations. The novel is even in, I don't know, dozens of languages. Um, but it first appared as a serial in, on June 8th, June 5th, sorry, 1851, in the National Era, which was an abolitionist paper operated by William Lord, Lloyd Garrison. It had a profound impact on slavery, 
on the idea of abolition when it was released in 1852 as a novel. And it really went on to be the best-selling novel of the 19th century. So here's a quote here from Barbara Hotchman who says, Uncle Tom's Cabin went on to become the best-selling novel of the 19th century and second only to the Bible. And I think that is really important to understand because in the 19th century, literacy rates were not what they are today. So if people were reading in the 19th century, not as many people as you think were reading the newspaper because that required a certain literacy. But if you were a religious person, as many people were, they were reading the Bible. But then only that second to that was Uncle Tom's Cabin. So it's more likely that people might've been reading Uncle Tom's Cabin than even their daily newspaper. That's how popular this book actually was. But what's key to the text and what I really focus on in the book is about how central it was that the enslaved characters knew how to read. So literacy for the enslaved person in the 19th century was actually very powerful. So it's through the character, for example, of George Harris, who was a highly literate person, who was the person who ran away from the plantation. He runs away and he's even prepared to kill for his freedom. Like he is adamant. And he his he has sort of, sort of this, in the novel, it's kind of this un tenable masculinity like he can't be tamed and he and he's willing to risk it all to be free at the same time you have uncle tom who's very docile who's who's really only reading the bible he's not reading anything else and who is very loyal to his enslavers and to plantation slavery itself and so because of that uncle tom's cabin really served as an education for many people about slavery but also around the anxieties around a literate slave population that literacy had the potential for black emancipation and black emancipation could also be threatening <laughs> so there's more to the novel than just the um anti-slavery um abolitionist and even the sentimental um, novel, like it often gets taken up and people focus on that. But it's really through myself reading Barbara Hodgman's book that I began to understand that literacy had a lot to do with this novel as well and, and how literacy takes on different implications um, in terms of race in the 19th century. But what I want to do is really get to how did how did the idea for this book happen? I feel like when people hear authors talk about their book, sometimes they're very fascinated to know where did this idea come from? Because it seems pretty random that me as a black Canadian woman, all of a sudden I would be writing about Uncle Tom. Um, where did that come from? So it really begins for me in 2007. Even though I had read Uncle Tom's Cabin, in the early 2000s, just as a lay citizen. I was not an academic at that time. I just had an interest in the novel. It was in 2007, sorry, 2017, there was a special exhibit for Black History Month at St. James Cathedral, which is a historical church here in Toronto. And to my surprise, when I went into the church, there was a display with Josiah Hansen Uncle Tom's Cabin and just various like vignettes from the book. There was a picture of, of Harriet Beecher Stowe. And I thought, this is so random. And for those who don't know, you can actually read on the um, the card that I have here in this photograph that Uncle Tom, um, Josiah Henson was an enslaved person who fled north to Canada to freedom, um, founded the town in the town of Dresden, founded the Dawn Settlement, co-founded and lived in Canada. But his biography was really the inspiration for Stowe's Uncle Tom. So he 
is has forever been intertwined with the novel. And even if you go to the Uncle Tom's Cabin Museum and Heritage Site in Dresden, you contribute to the ward uncovered which was the second iteration of The Ward, um, that book about the community in the city of Toronto. But it was really about this. So they had discovered at the archeological dig an Uncle Tom's Cabin plate. And that plate and what's depicted on that plate is Eliza Harris, George Harris's wife in Uncle Tom's Cabin. This is her fleeing from the plantation in, as the narrative goes over the flows of the Ohio River into Canada. And so that's what this plate is depicting. And so in that book, um, The Ward Uncovered, I write about this plate and I sort of started writing about it. And while I was writing about it, in conversation with my editor, um, John Lawrence, I'm not sure if he's here, but if he is, hi. Um, in writing about it, that's when I just started to think, wow, Uncle Tom's Cabin really is everywhere. It's like it's coming up. It's, it's just popping up in all these random places. And then he said, you know, this would be a great idea for a book. And, you know, I'm one of those people where when someone tells me this is a great idea, I tend to say, oh, is it? <laughs> Tell me more. How can we bring it to life? So I didn't necessarily see it as a book. He saw it as a book before I did. And then the ideas just started to come to me. And I really realized that that one, I was the right person to write about it because I, I work across three centuries. So I have a really broad depth of history. And also I was just generally interested in, I'm generally interested in returns, transformations. So when things return or get remixed or something starts as something else, some one thing, and then it gets transformed into another, I've just sort of realized that that's really what I'm into. <laughs> And it doesn't really matter what form it takes. So Uncle Tom, Uncle, just just fit that narrative. And so that's where the idea of the book really came together. And so what I want to do now in the time that's remaining is kind of try to take you through all the key moments that I talk about in the book. There's many aspects of these timelines that I'm going to go through that I'm, I'm leaving out for time's sake. You know, you can only talk about so much. But this is really going to give you a sense of the breadth of all the things that I talk about in the book. And one of the major things that I would say to you, excuse me, is that in addition to Uncle Tom and his use in the culture, this book also talks about the different ways that Uncle Tom shows up in terms of media technologies. So I'm talking about film, television, advertising, radio, um, and then at the end of the book, I'm really focusing in on the political political realm. So it's also dealing with those moments too of how, and, and you know, I was saying this to someone earlier that one of the things that I discovered even in writing the book is that every time there was a new medium, Uncle Tom's Cabin was there. So when the novel turned into the traveling minstrel show, it was there. When the minstrel show morphed into film, one of the first films, it was there. When that morphed into radio, one of the first radio programs, there's an Uncle Tom's Cabin. Same thing with television, same thing as we go through the era. So that's one of the reasons why the book is also kind of a media history in addition to it being a cultural history. 
And so here are the key moments. So we're going to start with the novel that everyone knows, Uncle Tom's Cabin. So it's really with Stowe's novel in 1852 that Uncle Tom and the narrative of martyrdom is really formed. And so this focus as well on literacy was this idea that, you know, the enslaved could kind of be civilized through the act of literacy, if it was through faith and this kind of pious belief in the afterlife. You know, that, you know, there's a famous quote from The Color Purple where Miss Seeley says, you know, this life be over soon. You know, there's, there's, there's something else waiting for me. And so that narrative really is, is formed through this text and through the 19th century. And so Uncle Tom's Cabin as a text, however, was very contradictory because, you know, on the one hand, you had the narrative of Uncle Tom, and then the other hand, you had the illustrations. I just don't have time in this talk to get to the illustrations, but the illustrations, so the images of Uncle Tom's Cabin really is almost what lived on more so than the text. And it was really one of the first texts in the 19th century to have really um, in-depth, colorful illustrations to go along with the text. So you could kind of see what Uncle Tom looked like, especially the scenes with Uncle Tom reading to little Eva. And hence you had from the beginning of the novel, you already have the trope of the older black man as being a non-threatening force in a young girl's, white girl's life. And we can go through to the 30s and that's the, that's the Bill Robinson and the Shirley Temple trope that we now equate as starting with Shirley Temple and Bojangles Robinson, but it really is the filmic iteration of Uncle Tom and little Eva reading in the novel because of the illustrations in the novel. Then it's 1854. And in 1854, what you have is the first Canadian connection because um, George Howard, who was part of the Aiken and Howard duo was born in Nova Scotia. And they're really the first to be attributed with making a stage adaptation of Stowe's novel because it was so popular. But what I talk about in the Ward Uncovered chapter is that there were really no copyright laws at this time. So it's not as if Aiken um, and Howard checked in with Harriet Beecher Stowe to see if they could do the, the, the stage adaptation. They just did it. And so she was really not benefiting from that. And so this adaptation is where they really say the, the mutation of Uncle Tom really starts to happen because they take liberties with the narrative. They basically change it, right? As we know, anytime something gets adapted for a different medium, it changes based on the medium. And so through this time period of the 1854 to like the 1870s, there are dozens of these small scale minstrel shows reproducing Uncle Tom, they actually called them Tom shows, and they toured not just the Northern US, but also into Canada. Um, Stephen Johnson, who was my supervisor for my postdoc at U of T, he's written articles about touring Uncle Tom's Cabin theatrical productions, not just in Toronto, but throughout Southern Ontario in the 1850s and 1860s. In fact, there were many of them that performed at the St. Lawrence Hall, um, in the 1850s in Toronto. And so nearly all the Uncle Tom's Cabin minstrel shows, what they did is that there's a pivotal scene in the book 
um, where there's like a slave auction, the minstrel show turned that more into like a variety act, like they, and they made it more of a musical moment. And so if you can think about what that did for theater audiences is that it turned what was really a site of torture and punishment into something jovial. It's kind of the beginning of the narrative of framing slavery as though slaves were really happy. They wanted to be enslaved. That's actually through performance where that narrative starts to take hold in addition to the illustrations. That narrative doesn't really happen in the novel. And then when we get to 1879, we have the emergence of Uncle Remus. So Joel Chandler Harris writes some, a novel just like Uncle Tom, this is a literary character that he calls Uncle Remus. Again, like Uncle Tom's Cabin, it's when Uncle Remus, through the illustrations of Arthur Burdett Frost, through, through him illustrating Uncle Remus, we have these tales of Uncle Remus that happened in the 1880s going forward. So now you have illustrations of this same kind of old man, servile, plantation figure known as Uncle Remus now, not Uncle Tom. But what's key is that it's the same type of, I, this is why I call this a mutation on Uncle Tom, because who is Uncle Remus? He's playful, he's harmless, he's collegial, he's always happy, singing songs. But at this time, you know, Uncle Tom in Harriet Beecher Stowe's novel is really not an old man. He's maybe in his 40s. By the time we get into the 1870s, 1880. So we're in the US context, we're talking about reconstruction era and post reconstruction era. Suddenly Uncle Tom is aged. And I believe through the scholarship and my own reading, he's aged to no longer be a threat because the George Harris and the Uncle Tom of the 1850s are virile men who run, They right? George Harris takes his life. Now we have a very old, you know, probably in physical ill health person who's just there to smile and, and help little white children find their way. And so that's what is created through the 1880s. And so at this time, you also have um, a bit of a mutation between, it's kind of a mix between Uncle Tom's Cabin, cabin of Harriet Beecher Stowe and the, the stage Uncle Tom. They kind of merge together because even in the literature of Uncle Remus, there's like a black dialect that emerges. So Uncle Remus doesn't speak like all the other characters. He speaks in a kind of broken English. That is taken from the stage. That's not taken from the novel. But at the same time, Uncle Remus kind of becomes the template of a type of black figure that you now see 1880s through the 1890s, sorry, in advertising. So suddenly in advertising, you start to see this older man character who's speaking in a quote unquote Negro dialect in breakfast cereal, in, in, in you know, shoe polish, you name it, right? In the book, I go into much detail about the sleeping car porter and how the sleeping car porter and that imagery on the railways kind of is also a mutation on Uncle Tom as this like servile person who was always there to smile and to make people feel comfortable. But it's really 1903 is where we get to a, a real turning point in the mutation because this is the first time that Uncle Tom's Cabin becomes a film. 
It's a 12 minute adaptation silent film of the novel by Thomas Edison and Edwin Porter. Now, Edison and Porter, the same year had teamed up on the great train robbery. If any of you have ever heard of that film, um, one of the most critically acclaimed silent films of the era. And side note, I actually saw that film at TIFF probably about 10 years ago, and it is amazing given the, the time that it was done. But they also produced this 12-minute Harriet Beecher Stowe, Uncle Tom's Cabin. And so this film is often credited as the first time there was a Black character on the big screen, but Tom was not played by a Black person. This was a white person in Blackface. So the first Uncle Tom's Cabin was really a mutation on Aiken and Howard's minstrel show, not on Harriet Beecher Stowe's 1852 novel. And so it marks the moment when blackface from the theater migrates onto the big screen in film. And then as we get into the 20th century, here are some key moments really up until the 50s. And I think the first one again is another film moment. This time you have the first African-American man, Sam Lucas, to portray Uncle Tom in a film. And so Sam Lucas um, had been playing Uncle Tom really since the 1870s on stage. He had been performing as Uncle Tom. And so when he appears in this 1914 film, um, again, by then, even Sam Lucas is no younger, longer a young man. He's an old man. So here's the beginning that really marks the idea of the old black man portraying an Uncle Tom type. And I would say to you, if you really think about some of the films you've probably seen in your lifetime, you have seen this type of character before in the form of either Morgan Freeman, Lawrence Fishburne. Um, the list can go really on and on of the older Black male character who's kind of playing a servile type role, who is there to just advance the plot line of the white characters on the big screen. It really begins with Sam Lucas in this iteration of Uncle Tom's Cabin in 1914. And so what's key is that as Sam Lucas is playing this like elderly, kind of feeble-minded man, it, it had a lasting impression on American audiences. And if you think of um, Birth of a Nation, which comes out in 1915, you know, that's the first film to screen at the White House. Most people don't know that, but that was Woodrow Wilson's White House. And that was the first film that was shown there. And so again, you have this idea of cinema marking a new century where the 19th century novel left it to readers' imaginations. The 20th century film created the visual to match what your imagination. So now you had something external to you that you could look at in terms of what you would remember. So now the cinema is really creating your memories. You're, you're not left to your own imagination to create your memories, which is what happens through a novel, right? In a novel, you might everyone who reads that novel might be attached to the characters, but they might have a different sense of what they imagine them to look like. With film, we know what they look like, right? So this is kind of the beginning of that, that, that um, filmic trope. 1927 is another film. And this is James B. Lowe this time as Uncle Tom. And this is a, Uncle Thomas, sorry. This is um, Uncle Thomas, Uncle Tom. Uh, this is a Universal Pictures adaptation. And why this one, um, is really memorable 
is because an actor by the name of Charles Gilpin was first pegged to play the role of Uncle Tom. But he was adamant that he was not going to play this role unless some of the inflammatory material was changed. They, he did not like Uncle Tom's docility. And so he turned down the role and he went back to his job and his day job was as an elevator operator. So think about that. In 1927, this Black actor said, I'd rather be an elevator operator than star in a film where I have to portray by then was already considered a racial stereotype. And so instead, they found another Black actor who was willing to do it. So this is kind of the moment in 1927 where there's some pushback starting to happen as it relates to the Uncle Tom depiction. And why is that? In 1927, you're in the thick of the Harlem Renaissance. You're in the thick of Langston Hughes, um, Nora uh, Hurston. Like you have all these, Josephine Baker, you have all these representations of African-Americans who are, um, you know, as W.E.B. Du Bois called it, they are a new Negro for a new century. And yet, so by 1927, there's a certain, of course, you have Marcus Garvey, Pan-Africanism. You have a certain consciousness that is now happening in the United States and around the Western world, even here in Canada through the Caribbean, that says Black people want to be more in control of their representation and of their imaging. And so it's really, even though we, we attach civil rights consciousness to the 1960s, the reality is, is that it was there in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s as well. And it really was beginning to show itself in how um, certain black actors were turning down roles because they didn't wanna play them anymore. But then what's key in that clip in that little snippet from Twitter that I showed you um, about, um, sorry, it wasn't Twitter. Yeah, it was Twitter. Um, Daniel Cameron, um, one of the, the Sophia Nelson talks, makes reference to Stephen Fetchett. And so Stephen Fetchett was a character from the 1930s who depicted a lanky, slow-witted, simple-minded black man. So think about that. In 2020, someone is aligning Kentucky's attorney general with this character from the 1930s. And why is that? This was, Stephen Fetchett was arguably the most popular and dominant representation of black masculinity through the depression era. And so played by Lincoln Perry, he was very simple-minded, slow-witted. If any of you have ever seen clips on YouTube of Stephen Fetchett, he also speaks in a very slow timbre, um, almost seems as if he has a mental delay um, and he's always kind of confused. He's not sure, too sure about who he is or why he's doing what he's doing. Um, but he was extremely successful. Lincoln Perry was wealthy for the depression era. He was always working. And so he kind of popularized then this this also this tongue-tied stammer. And also he had this lazy man shuffle that he, he never really walked properly. He was always kind of shuffling. Um, and so this is who Sophia Nelson is aligning Terry Crews to. And I think that's really important to think about because it shows you in, at least in the African-American consciousness, these historical figures are still present. They still get invoked. And it's really important to understand why they're being invoked. Um, and in the book, I, I, I talk a bit about Stephen Fetchett and I try to explain it. Let's jump forward, 1946, Song of the South. So this is a live action spectacle with animate, animated sequences. If you've never heard of Song of the South, it's a technological wonder for the, 
you know, the pre the, the pre-digital era that you have live action and animation in a film. And what does it do? It romanticized the pastoral South. Again, this is the moment where Uncle Remus plucked from 1879, 1880, returns to audiences in the 20th century through Song of the South. And so in the film, it focuses on the little boy named Johnny, um, who again is on a plantation and, and there's a lot of things that happen and then they move to this, it's trying to depict like sort of Atlanta in the, in the, in the Civil War era, but it's not really clear if it's Atlanta. Point is, is that it's Uncle Remus, played by James Baskett, who is the ex-slave who is still living on the plantation and who befriends Johnny. And through the movie, a movie that most of us probably have never seen and yet probably all of us have heard of, <laughs> um, and I've seen clips of it, but I've never seen it in its entirety. And yet I know when Uncle Remus sings zippity doo -dah day right? And now zippity doo -dah, sorry, zippity doo -dah, that also won the 1947 Oscar for best song. And so we know the song, we know Uncle Remus, and yet we, no one really has ever seen the film. There's very few people alive today who have seen this film because it's still in the, in the Disney vault and it, it, it did not make it onto the Disney plus. So you really can't watch it. And yet Uncle Remus and that song has, is still so memorable that if you look up um, best um, Hollywood animated films of all time, it'll be on the list. If you look up best songs of all time to be in a film, Zippity Doodah, also on the list. And so a lot of these things from the past, the reason why they still linger is because they've been valorized in our culture through um, commemoration. And then that takes us to 1951. So here we have a Amos and Andy that had started as a radio show right, in the late, late 20s and 30s, is now revamped in 1951 into a television show. And so what happens in the revamping is that it's the first all-Black television show. Amos and Andy in 1951 is the first time there was an all-Black cast on television. The Amos and Andy radio show was a white cast with the two lead actors, excuse me, James um, Charles Coral and Freeman Gostin. Those were the characters who played Amos and Andy. They were white men in blackface for a radio show. I always find that incredibly disturbing. Even for the radio show, they still put on blackface, even though you couldn't see them. And I think it was because it was shot in front of a live audience to get the laugh. So the audience had to see them in blackface, but nonetheless, that was a radio show. When it moved to TV, audiences had changed. The, the times were changing. And so they did not cast um, Corell and Gosden to, to assume the role of a Amos and Andy. Instead, they cast Black people to assume the role of Amos and Andy. Um, you had Alvin Childress was his name, who played Amos. Spencer Williams played Andy. And then you had other Black characters. Tim Moore was the character Kingfish. And then you had um, uh, another... Uh, black woman who was playing the character of Sapphire. And so even that racial trope of Sapphire, it can be dated back to Amos and Andy of the black woman who's emasculating, very aggressive and often very critical of black men. 
And so these were caricatures that came again from the minstrel show. So a lot of these iterations are not Harriet Beecher Stowe's novel anymore. These iterations are, are of the Aiken and Howard minstrel show and the Uncle Remus that is coming in the 1854 and 1879-80. And then here we are post the 1960s. Now I'm missing, I'm, I'm leaving out some things that I do talk about in the book to just focus on, um, like I, I'm, I don't have time in this talk to talk about some of the filmic representations that happened post the 1920s. Instead, I've just taken some examples that bring us up to today that address what I deal with in the book. So for example, there's the cream of wheat guy, Rastus and Uncle Ben. As you know, over the summer, there was the big monumental move by all these companies to change their names. However, the essence of these trademarks still remain because Uncle Ben is still Ben. I don't think they're changing the name from Ben. And Cream of Wheat, I think I saw it in the store recently. I still see this icon on the packaging. And so these two icons, right? Cream of Wheat is coming in 1925-ish. Uncle Ben is actually a post-World War II creation in 1946. What's key is that both of these icons were based on real Black men, right? That the, the originators of the product saw these Black men working in, uh, a, a, in a restaurant. And in both cases, they wanted them, they took a picture and they said, can you be the spokesperson? And so these are based on real people who then became these consumer brand icons. And what's key about Uncle Ben that I'm showing you here, this is actually Uncle Ben circa 2007, when Mars Inc., which owned the brand at that time, rebranded Uncle Ben to be chairman of the board. So he wasn't serving the rice anymore. He was now in the boardroom. And they had this whole ad campaign around it that I talk about in the book and how what a coincidence it coincided with Obama's run for president of the United States, which I also address in the book. Then I talk a little bit in the book, I talk quite a bit actually about that mid 50s, 60s moment before the civil rights movement um, and sort of the depiction of black men on screen. And Sidney Portier really is the poster child for the way in which Uncle Tom morphed onto the big screen in that mid 20th century era um, as the very clean shaven, you know, guess who's coming to dinner, the type of black men that you would, you would be comfortable with in, in good company kind of thing. Here he is in 1958 um, in The Defiant Ones with Tony Curtis. In the book, I talk about the infamous scene where they're running for the train and he gets on, but Tony Curtis doesn't. And he's just so distraught that he can't make it all. He, he can't run to his freedom. Instead, he falls off the train with Tony Curtis. Um, and there's an infamous line that I quoted from, um, oh, I'm drawing blanks now, but there's an African-American author, right? Who says every black person who saw that scene was like, what are you doing? Get on the train, <laughs> run for your freedom. Why are you getting off? But again, it's this idea of Hollywood narrativizing this idea that a black person would rather be loyal to another white person than to, 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 to be an autonomous being and take their life and freedom into their own hands. So they'd still rather be Uncle Tom than George Harris. That's essentially what this narrative in The Defiant Ones is kind of reproducing in a different set of circumstances for mid 20th century audiences. And then we have, of course, OJ. 
you know, when I started the book, I never knew that I would dig so deep into OJ. But then I watched several documentaries about OJ and I realized OJ himself is also an iteration on Uncle Tom, especially through his advertising campaigns with Hertz in the 1970s. And so one of the things I talk about in, in sort of, I give a little bit of a biographical sketch of OJ, one, the greatest running back of all time, and I don't even watch football. <laughs> and even I know OJ is still the greatest running back that has ever played the game of football. And you can see in this Hertz ad, they're kind of playing on his greatness in that sense. But at the height of the civil rights movement in like 1967, 1968, OJ was a running back for USC at the time in LA. And he essentially at that moment made a decision that he was not going to stand for black community. He was going to do him, right? So that was the moment that he said that what's going on has nothing to do with me. As other black athletes, such as um, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Lou Alcindor at the time, Jim Brown, and several others were taking a stand and saying that we've had it. You know, They even had a big press conference that I talk about in the book. OJ was having none of that. And then in the 1970s, through his football career, you know, he really just did his own thing, so to speak. So in the book, I really call OJ a sellout Uncle Tom because he really didn't care too much about Black people until he needed Black people during the trial of the century in 1995 when he was acquitted of the murder of Nicole Brown um, and Ron Goldman. At that trial, he needed to become Black. And so what happens, and I talk about this in the book, is that a weird role reversal happens where OJ becomes this like black hero. And then Christopher Darden, who was on the, the, the prosecutor's team, he becomes the Uncle Tom who's out to persecute this innocent black man, right? And why did that happen? Well, I talk about it in the book. I can't give away all the secrets. So you have to read the book to find out how I explain the, the racial dynamics that happened during that trial. Then there's Bill Cosby. And Bill Cosby is basically the black buddy of the 1980s, not just on the Cosby show, but through his advertising with Jell-O pudding pops. I mean, I still remember these ads. He also was a spokesperson for Coke, a, a lot of different brands um, Bill Cosby was selling us. And so in the book, I kind of frame Bill Cosby as coming on the cusp of the Reagan era. And one of the historical facts that even I discovered in this book is that the Cosby show premiered on the same night that Reagan was elected for a second term, 1984. And so there is something about the Cosby show in this new era of Reaganomics, um, neoliberalism, and this like hyper focus on personal attainment and personal responsibility that the Cosby show is really intertwined with that narrative. And so it really became, before the Cosby show, there was really no show that depicted the university educated um, upper middle class black family. The Cosby show was really the first because I talk about it in the book. There were a slew of shows through the 1970s Many of you might remember them, Sanford and Son, Good Times. Um, I talk a lot about Good Times and some of the issues on that show with the Jimmy Walker character um, that depicted the quote unquote black ghetto. 
and sort of authenticated this idea of like street talk and jive talk and, and always being, you know, always having a hard time paying the rent. There was a, a poverty narrative to sitcoms in the 1970s. In the 1980s, there was a wealth narrative and the Cosby show really fit in with that wealth, wealth narrative. But at the same time, Bill Cosby as an iteration of Uncle Tom was many things. He was pleasing. He was always had a, looked on the bright side. Um, he was like a best friend. He was America's dad. I think there was an, uh, I talk about a, a story that they called him America's dad. You know, when was the last time they called any black man America's dad? That he's really an elite group, right? And so he kind of fit this narrative of Reaganomics of, of success. And at the same time, um, I also call Bill Cosby a smokescreen Tom because it was a smokescreen to what was really going on in black communities, the war on drugs, the neoconservative politics that were decimating um, black communities in terms of gentrification, um, over-policing, mass incarceration. So he took, he took the attention off of the realities of the six o'clock news and put it in the fictive townhouse of Brooklyn that didn't even really exist. And so his narrative really helped to say that there's no problem with black people in America. Look at the Bill Cosby, he's successful. And so that's why in the novel, I kind of, in the novel, in the book, I kind of explain um, how this idea of being a smokescreen is not exactly the same as being a sellout, that there's nuances to how Uncle Tom appears uh, from the 1980s, 70s, 80s onward. It, there's just a lot of nuances to that appearance. And then one of the things I wanted to end on um, was really this, the last chapters of the book really speak to um, this idea of conservatism, and um, this is the last slide, so I'm going to wrap it up, and liberalism. And Clarence Thomas and Obama, President Barack Obama, really epitomized these two polar opposites, both individuals who have been accused of being Uncle Tom. As many of you remember, it was in 1991, actually October 11th. So it was like, it would have been like around this time, the same time as the Amy, um, that Amy Comey, a woman is being having her um, White House hearings, same time. And so what happened? Clarence Thomas was accused of sexual harassment by Anita Hill, as you remember. And what does he say when he gets his time to speak? He says, I would like to start by saying unequivocally, uncategorically, that I deny each and every single allegation against me today. And from my standpoint as a Black American, as far as I'm concerned, and this is the next line, it is a high-tech lynching for uppity Blacks who in any way deign to think for themselves. And he goes on and on and on. This is the moment where he basically says, how dare you think just because I'm Black, I have to agree with everyone. I, I think for myself. This is a neo-Uncle Tomism that I address in the book. And at the same time, allegations about Obama being an Uncle Tom, I kind of defend him and say, yes, Uncle... Um, President Obama wasn't the greatest in terms of black community, but he's not an Uncle Tom because he never sought out to harm black community purposefully and, and intentionally. Whereas many could argue with the, 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 um, the rulings that Clarence Thomas has written about, he has actually um, reversed many of the um, uh, sort of 
strides that were made in the civil rights movement to protect the rights of African-Americans, he has actually reverted them with his decisions. And so Uncle Tom in the political realm is actually a threat to black life and black safety. It's not just a racial epithet, like David Cameron is not just an Uncle Tom in that he doesn't care about Black people. He's an Uncle Tom because he is a threat to Black life. That's where we are with Uncle Tomism in the 21st century. So I just want to leave with this last point that I make in the conclusion to my book. I say, you know, there's really never been a moment in my life when I have not known of Uncle Tom. Like Mammy, Uncle Tom is more than a literary character or a racial epithet. He exists beyond labels and justifications. Uncle Tom transcends boundary, border, literary pages, film scripts, and TV screens. Like language itself, I make the argument that Uncle Tom circles the globe and that he is universal and he does not go away. So thank you very much for listening. And I think I wrapped it up in a decent amount of time. <laughs> this was this was excellent. So Thank you, thank you very much, Cheryl. Um, should I stop sharing my screen, perhaps? Oh, uh, sure. Awesome. Um, so first, you know, I wanna, again, thank you. And then uh, I'm checking the time and I wanna open the floor to questions. And I think I was just in there, right? At, at just a little over, I knew it would be. <laughs> Looks like Kristen has a question. Awesome. You want to go ahead? Hey, um, thank you so much for this great talk, Cheryl. It was wonderful learning more about your new book. Um, and I'm wondering, um, actually, if you can go a little bit back to the beginning and some of the issues that you raised around um, pop culture. Um, and so specifically, I'm really thinking about like contemporary critiques of black essentialism um, that are launched from within the black community and how they impact popular culture. Um, and so not just the idea of like black supremacy that we find in um, those critiques of Terry Crews that were circulating earlier this summer, um, but things like the ADOS movement um, and actually sort of skepticism about non-black actors portraying African-Americans on film. Yes, uh, thank you for, for your question, uh, Kristen, because I talk about that in the book as well. <laughs> um, in, the, in the chapter that I talk about uh, President Obama, I also talk about the ADOS movement. And I talk about the fact that, um, you know, while that movement seems to be framed as sort of a, you know, policing the boundaries of, of this essential blackness, actually they're not. They're actually saying that we, are Amer Americans, we have lineage in America. And that lineage has to be acknowledged as mattering and not being lumped in into what I would call, you know, and I feel like under the Obama administration, they almost tried to take on narratives of multiculturalism. You know, they almost tried to neutralize the African-American experience. And I think that's the problem. And that's why I actually agree with the ADOS movement because they're saying, wait a second here, we're not immigrants. And if we are framed as immigrants, we came here by force. Can you, can there be some retribution about that? You know, just like in South Africa, you know, where they, there has been an atonement 
if you want to recognize us as immigrants, you have to atone for the way that African-Americans came to America. And as it stands in the 21st century, there's been no atonement. You know, in many ways, their system of apartheid was worse than the South African system of apartheid because it went on for so many centuries, so many deaths, so many lynchings. And yet there is like, it doesn't get absorbed as this reckoning. There's no real reckoning for African-Americans. So it, I don't believe they're trying to force a kind of essentialism. I think they're actually trying to finally claim rights that the civil rights era, even though there were policies and legislation, they never really gave African-Americans claim, uh, like citizenship claims, I think. I think there are still a lot of claims of citizenship that they've never been given. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Yeah. Uh, do we have any other questions from the audience? I'm checking my uh, chat. I can ask a question, Aicha awesome. and Cheryl. Thank you so much for that talk, Cheryl. It was really wonderful. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I learned a lot about Uncle Tom. Like I've, I've heard of different depictions of him, but I didn't realize uh, just the genealogy that his transformation went through. So thank you so much. Um, so you mentioned the Mammy character at the end of your talk. And I'm just wondering like, in what different ways was Uncle Tom constructed in relation to different depictions of black femininity? Or was this a character that generally stands kind of on his own outside of relationships with other black people, both um, like, I guess, I'm thinking specifically of like, of these caricatures, caricature kinds of depictions. Yeah, and thank you for your question, Carolyn, because I also talk about that in the book. Uh, I just couldn't find a way to fit it in the talk and, and, and give you a sense of its breadth. But in the book, I talk about Aunt Jemima Mammy, and I also go right up and I talk about the contemporary Aunt Jemima, which is Annie, the spokesperson for Popeye's chicken. So I, I address the Mammy character, and I also talk about Mammy, who showed up in a Tom and Jerry, who, who Mammy Two-Shoes, who you never saw above her waist. You only saw her legs, her waist down. I talk about that character too. The two are intertwined, right? Because both the aunt and the uncle are plantation um, stereotypes that actually were created the way they look, not the person itself, but the way they look was created in Southern sentimental literature. Right. So, for example, in the book, I kind of address the fact that I think I talk about this real mammies didn't look like the mammy in Gone with the Wind. <laughs> you know, that is a fiction. Real mammies were probably very skinny and very starved because they were not fed well. And they so they didn't even look like that. And so what I do is that I talk about the fact that the mammy, the, the aunt to the uncle, they really go they go hand in hand. But what makes them different is that historically, the way Mammy has shown up in, in film or in, in TV is that she's actually an aggressive character. Even if you've seen Gone with the Wind, the way Mammy talks to Scarlett O'Hara, like she's letting her have it, right? Like she's speaking her mind. So the Mammy character, whereas the uncle as the comparative is not outspoken at all, is very docile is very timid, um, is very deferent. Like rarely does uncle even look the person in their eye, right? It's very clear that the uncle is a subordinate. Whereas in some of the Mammy depictions, Mammy is very aggressive 
And in some ways, Mammy's telling the character what to do. And then they might say, good idea, Mammy, right? Like they might actually agree, like they affirm, they affirm Mammy's position. So in the book, I actually talk about in 1923, when you have the daughters of the Confederacy who lobbied um, Congress to erect a Mammy monument in Washington, DC. So it actually passed the, the house, it, it got stopped in the Senate. So if that never happened, there would be a Mammy monument somewhere on the National Mall in Washington, DC. So that's how revered Mammy was to Southerners. Uncle Tom is a little bit different. Uncle Tom is not that same kind of re revered character because Uncle Tom is often was really brought up in the black community. Like it was black community that would hurl that name at people. Whereas the dominant culture loved Mammy, <laughs> you know, in many ways, if I were to point to some contemporary iterations of Mammy, you'd probably be like, oh God, I never even thought of that. I like that movie. Like you might not even see it because Mammy is still with us as well. Right. So I think, I think that's, that's why in the book, I, I, I have to talk about those characters too, because they're like the other side of the coin to, to uncle Tom. Right. Um, awesome. Beverly, I see your hand. Great. Cheryl, thank you so much. I so enjoyed listening to your talk and, and watching it and um, learned so much. And, you know, I, I really had was just sort of taking it all in until I thought your very last statement where you talked about President Obama. And I have a question that you said, in a sense, you would defend President Obama's not being quite an Uncle Tom because he hasn't caused as much harm to black people. But then I just thought of his record and deportation and and you know his drone reputation. I'm just curious, how do you how did you think think through that? No, what I mean, what I meant what I meant to say, if I didn't say it, is that his his policies were not overtly meant to thwart black progress. And, a, and to be directed at black community. His policies, however, that's why he's, I kind of say it's complicated because at the same time he wasn't really pro-black but he wasn't anti-black, you know? Like he wasn't, he's, he's somewhere in the middle oscillating back and forth. And the people who get framed as Uncle Tom in the present, they have no interest in ever doing anything that is gonna remotely seem to benefit black community ever. Like they wouldn't even make a statement that seemed to benefit black community. Whereas on the flip side to President Obama, there has never been more black people through the White House because of President Barack Obama. Think about all the acts, all the people, even Michelle Obama's, her whole platform, they brought so many types of people into that White House that we would that we will never see again, maybe, right? So he's complicated. So the reason I defend him is it say is that I say it's not as easy and clear cut to call him that when you look at some of the things that he did do. But at the same time, yeah, I also say, like you pointed out, his foreign policy is just atrocious, right? His his domestic policy, as it uh, as it relates to the same things, the deportation and even certain economic policies, I couldn't say that they were exactly helping black community, right? So, but what's really important in the book that I kind of point to, without becoming like um, you know, a political pundit, which I'm not. 
right? I kind of steer away from talking too much about his policies. And instead I talk about the way he was embroiled in racial um, um, sort of mashups in the media, especially around like Reverend Wright at the beginning um, back in 2007 and eight and how he dealt with that. And then other ways that he's, other things that he's said, especially to the black caucus in, in the US um, and just trying to frame himself. Um, so I don't fully defend him, but I don't, I, I, I don't, I'm not willing to, to flat out say that he's the same type of person as Clarence Thomas, because he's just not. Right, of course, of course. Thanks. You're welcome. Uh, Karen, I see your hand. Thank you. Thank you for coming, Cheryl. This is super interesting. This is going to be not only a really readable book, but it's going to be a teachable book. So thanks in advance for that. Um, yes. um, one, of the, one of the things I like about your work is that you put Canada into this story. And you've done that in the past with your, uh, um, the work you did on the article you have on Aunt Jemima, which is also a super teachable um, super teachable thing in Canada, which I think is that does a lot of, there's, yep. there's more work to do in Canada, right? I think to bring these, um, these tropes into, into our history. So, and I, you mentioned a little bit um, on and off, but I wonder if you have any general overall conclusions or views about how Uncle Tom plays generally in Canada, the, the Canadian not exactly Canadian equivalents, but the way in which this um, this makes an appearance in Canadian history or, or yeah. culture. No, Karen, thank you for your question because I do um, I do talk a lot about ads, advertising, especially in the 1940s and 50s um, in Canadian newspapers. Like I, my a lot of my examples in the book are actually drawn from Canadian media, even though the larger discussion is, is on the US iteration of this, um, trope. Um, and in particular, I talk about the ways in which um, certain ads for Uncle Ben through the 1950s and 60s that were in Canadian um, magazines like Chatelaine magazine had quite a few ads. I use them to frame how the, um, especially the, the advertising, the advertising tropes, how, how nuanced they were to the Canadian public. Like in a lot of those advertising, they talk about the cold winters or they talk about the weather or they talk about something that the, Cana they, the Canadian reader would, would register, but yet there's this Af American product, right? And so just like the Aunt Jemima article that you mentioned, you know, Aunt Jemima is American, but that entire article was plucked from Canadian newspapers. And so part of this book too, I do the same thing with the uncle, especially the advertising of Uncle Ben, Rasta's the cream of wheat guy, and even Amos and Andy. You know, Amos and Andy was, remember before the Massey Commission in 1951, a lot of our media was drawn from the US, especially radio. So through the 1930s, there's a lot of ads in the newspapers to listen to Amos and Andy on NBC radio because Canadians were listening too. So there is a bit of, there is a lot of that in the book for sure, where I make the point to say, again, it's kind of another iteration where I'm making a, a larger argument this time because it's a book that Canadians are always consuming American media. 
are we always understanding the tropes that we're consuming? I don't know, but we're always consuming it. In fact, one of the things that I also talk about um, for myself, there's many times in the book where I talk about I was watching something on TV. <laughs> I'm watching that on TV from Toronto. So yes, it's American TV, but I'm not having to go to the States to, to get it, to consume it. I'm watching it here from my living room, right? So I, I talk about what that, what that kind of means. And I think what it means is that in Canada, we have not paid enough attention to all the racial tropes that we consume as everyday normal practice. of race racism um it just makes it really difficult i think in the context of canada to make sense of a lot of this stuff but i do i try to i always try to bring it into the book because it's really important and i think in this case it's also important because uncle tom has also been transnational from the very beginning uncle tom's cabin crossed borders immediately so I also wanted for Americans who are going to read this book to also have that awareness that Uncle Tom is not just an American thing, it's transnational. Right. And on that point, actually, um, it reminded me, I, I'm from Turkey and it was pretty much the only book in our class library in my elementary school. So I had to read it pretty much every year. Over amazing. and over again. <laughs> I mean, that's amazing, right? Yeah, like, absolutely. <laughs> and it uh, makes you—it right. makes you wonder, like, why that book? There are so many books that they yeah. could pick from, but I know, yet I know. we still go back to that book. Exactly, exactly. Um, so interesting. Um, all right, I see two questions in the chat. First from Kim. Kim, do you want me to read it or do you want to chime in? I will read it. Uh, can you tell us more about the plate you found in the ward in Toronto? How did it get there and why did people, which people want Uncle Tom plates? Yes. So um, funny enough, I don't talk about that plate too much in the actual book. Um, but you can, of course, buy the ward uncovered. <laughs> we would still appreciate that. And you can read all about that plate. But um, like, I, it wasn't myself who found it, right? It was like Infrastructure Ontario with um, Holly Martel's um, archaeological team. So they found like over like, I think a million artifacts. And that plate, you know, we're not really sure exactly like how it ended up there or, or who. But what I know from studying it is that there was a lot of memorabilia around Uncle Tom's cabin. So people had, there was like Uncle Tom's cabin wallpaper, plates, cups. Um, you could even, the, in certain places, I think in like Paris and even London, you could buy like little Eva outfits and little Eva hats. And there was just a lot of memorabilia attached to the book. So, and as I said, just thinking about the movement of theater troops in the 19th century, and Uncle Tom's Cabin played in Toronto for many seasons. So we're talking probably about six or seven seasons. 
through the, or maybe even longer than that. It could have been like into the 1870s. There would have been some Uncle Tom's Cabin performance. And just like, I always like to compare things to the present moment because then you can understand it. Think about pre-COVID when we actually went to the theater or you went to a show. What would be there? They would be selling stuff there, right? There's books, there's t-shirts. There's always going to be something attached to the play. It would be no different in the 19th century. If anything, it was more because there wasn't as much of a retail presence. And obviously there was no internet. So there was no online store. Like you had to physically go to the show to get the thing. So my estimation is there was a traveling Tom show that came through Toronto, someone in the ward, or it could have even been, who knows, someone went to one of those shows and the plate either could have been given as a gift or purchased just like today, you know, a friend of yours goes to Disneyland or somewhere in the States, they bring you back a souvenir. So in your own personal archive, with you, quote unquote, when you pass away, someone's going to say, oh, they went to Disney World. Meanwhile, what is the real history of that souvenir? Someone went there and, and gave it to you as a gift, but you're not making a note in a notepad or anything. Sometimes people do that. And as someone who works in archives, I love it when they do that because now we have the truth of the object and we're not just speculating. But in this case, we have no way to know. But we, what we do know is that in this place designated as the ward, which was not an upscale community, but was a multicultural community that was you know, very much lower um, income, there was this plate. And it's, it signifies that all groups were interested in Uncle Tom's Cabin, not just the wealthy who could have afforded to, to travel around to see the shows. Awesome, thank you. Um, we have another question in the chat from Emma. Uh, Emma, do you want me to read it? I will read it. Um, thank you so much for your insightful outlook on Uncle Tom. I was wondering if you could call someone like Ben Carson from the Trump administration uh, as an Uncle Ben, even if he tends to be very, uh, I cannot pronounce this, I'm sorry, and unpopular even amongst white Americans. <laughs> thank you for your question. I also address <laughs> Ben Carson in the book. I feel like every question I'm going to say to you that I also talk about in the book. I mean, the book is jam-packed with a lot of stuff, but I do talk about Ben Carson just briefly and absolutely. Ben Carson is an agent who is actively working to make life extremely difficult for Black people, especially those Black people who are lower income he's he's like dead set on ruining their lives like it seems like that's his goal and his only goal is is also then saving money for the wealthy so dr ben and and but again dr ben carson is like a transformation because why is he so celebrated you know he's one of the first i think he's a neurosurgeon right one of the first black neurosurgeons in america so what a great achievement sometimes i guess it literally went to his head <laughs> maybe he spent too much time in other people's heads that it, it went to his own head and now he just acts like he you know and i think it's it's not just him you know there i talk about the rise of black conservatism in general um following the works of dr cornell west 
um, in Race Matters in 1993. You know, he was kind of one of the first texts to start thinking about this new identity, Black conservatives. It was really new. And it's coming in the Reagan era when you have, you know, we always talk about, in the book, I also talk about waves of migration. So we talk about the, the creation of the suburbs in the, in the post-World War II era, where you have white flight from the inner cities. We don't talk about Black flight that there was actually a migration of black people into the suburbs, especially in the 1980s. And that's creating this two tier black community where there's the black community that is now relatively wealthy, um, highly educated and moving up the echelon in politics and law and the medical field as you still have the narrative of black African Americans living in the inner city, right? So Dr. Ben Carson, just like T Clarence Thomas, they're of that elk who is now leaving their connection to African-Americans in the inner city and moving into white suburbs and literally just believing like the narrative of the Jeffersons, if you know that show from the 1970s, they had moved on up to a different side of town that they just really lost their connection. And, and I would say empathy for those African-Americans who didn't. And then in line with the narrative of the 1980s, Reaganomics was all about, um, personal responsibility, good or bad. And so you had a group of black professionals, Dr. Ben Carson fits in this group who felt they took personal responsibility and they made it. Why can't other people do the same? And you, you actually hear, I've heard Ben Carson say things kind of like that. Like, well, if I'm successful, I don't know what's holding back all those people. They're lazy and it's their fault. So you have the beginning of blaming people for poverty as opposed to looking for structural changes, which is what the civil rights movement was aiming to do. And so the failure of those, of that generation that came of age in the 1980s is that they stopped seeking structural change. Instead, they sought individual gains. And so you have black individuals who succeeded, but the structural changes in America, they really stopped happening in the 1960s as it relates to, to black community. Right. Um, uh, Jennifer, I see your hand. Hello, hello, thank you so much. Um, you, you, you know how it happens that then the conversation continues and then you feel like you're not sure what your question is anymore. So I'm sorry for that. I thank you for your talk. Uh, it's very interesting and I'm learning a lot. And I, I, I think now my question is, can you reiterate, perhaps I just kind of missed it, like the what what's the main significance for you or what are some of the main significances for you of your recognition of this trope and its, uh, and its um, manifestations over time as you showed us? Like what kind of cultural work, what kind of political work is it doing? And then perhaps related to it, um, and my background is, uh, is in comparative literature and, and film, so maybe that's why I'm struggling with this a little bit. It feels to me like it's different to talk about um, a fictional representation and, and like real people and, and then uh, an assessment of whether or not um, a particular fictional character or a real person fits into uh, a, 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 you know, like a, a kind of a labeling of some, yeah. uh, as, uh, as a, an Uncle Tom or not. So I'm 
confused about that, if you could help me understand. Thank you so much. No, you're welcome. Um, and, and what I would say is that when you read the book, it's going to make a lot of sense because there's a middle part in the book where I make the transition, where I make the transition and I explain that transition through a chapter that's about the anti-Tom figure. And the anti-Tom figure emerges in the 1960s with Muhammad Ali and a few others who are real people who invoke Uncle Tom against other real people. That Uncle Tom makes a leap in that moment from not just being about a fictional character to actually now, like the famously, you know, Muhammad Ali was like calling Sonny Liston an Uncle Tom and the media was reporting this. So suddenly now you had a real person and why was Sonny Liston an Uncle Tom? He lived in the suburbs. I think he had married a white woman. He, he was like, he spoke very proper English. So suddenly in that moment, you have a real, you have real um, attributes or, or, or traits. And so that's when Uncle Tom shifts. And, and so the idea for me, um, if I understand your question, if I'm actually even answering your question, is that part of what I try to get out of the book is just that it's a, there's like a lot of slippage between a fiction and a reality. And I think that's really what I'm, I'm also, the book kind of like morphs and, and, and tries to show you where Uncle Tom is just a slippery character. You know, sometimes it is about something fictive and sometimes it's about something real. And, and, and what's key though, and I think what I try to do and in and, and, and showing the continuity is that Uncle Tom is always about the boundaries of loyalty. Uncle Tom, it doesn't matter if it's real or, or fictive. It's always about, is this a character who is loyal to the issues, the collective issues, not the individual issues of black community. And so that could be a representation or that can be a real person. And that's the reason in the contemporary, Uncle Tom tends to come up a lot in politics. Like I would say over the last decade, it's often in the political realm that people will be calling political figures Uncle Tom not necessarily a character in a TV show or a film. And part of that reason is because politics in the last, in the two, 21st century have really become a spectacle. <laughs> like more so I think even than decades past where you're not even sure sometimes if you're watching something real or if you're just watching something that's made to be entertaining. It, it's really like, I, I think about the era of Trump like we're gonna be unpacking this era for another 25 years because half the time I'm looking at things and I'm thinking, is this real? <laughs> like, or was this staged? Like everything just really feels staged even though politics itself has an element of staging. Like everything really feels for the documentary that's being filmed or for some theatrical production, it almost doesn't feel real. So Uncle Tom, in the contemporary, I kind of in the book tried to show how it, it's a slippery character um, that can't really be, it's, he's not really real and he's not really unreal, if that makes sense. It's, and, and I think it's because how he's been taken up by real people and through representational means too. So if that's answering your question, it's like, it's tough. Thank you so much. Yeah, it, it seems to me there's also this, um, the, the way that it, it, I mean, it shows the continued strength of oppressions, and it also limits the possibilities of those particular individuals who are being called Uncle Tom, for example, just as one of the many, I mean, you did a great job answering. So thank you so much.
Yes, you're welcome. And you're that's a great point you made because it's true. It in as much as it's hurled, it's limiting. Like I actually say that I think in the conclusion, like what a limiting role it is for many black men who achieve any level of success. Like they have to be constantly monitoring their behavior. They're there, whereas black women, I feel are have a little bit more freedom to act in certain ways. If you were to really think about the representations you see of black men on TV or even in real life, you'll begin to notice how contained they actually have to be. And that speaks to what, what was spoken in the earlier about policing and black masculinity. And think about some of the ways in which black men have been shot and killed by police often it's because they just asked a question. <laughs> they asked too many questions. They did not obey right away. They didn't act docile. And so that has implications too on Uncle Tom and the expectation of what how good black men are supposed to act. And then if they don't act that way and they get killed, it's their fault because they didn't listen just like good old Uncle Tom didn't listen, right? Like there's still a ways in which this fictive character has real implications on real life. And I think that's in the book, that's kind of, I don't really talk too much. I don't get into too much depth about a lot of the police brutality, but I do hint to it at the end because it's it's part of the narrative. And I think um, of, of all those cases with all those black men, there is a definitely a narrative of them not acting the way they were supposed to act and therefore the white uh, perpetrator was deemed to be justified in their use of violence. Yeah, which also kind of reminds me the, um, uh, the depiction of the uh, protests in the States and also in Canada, right? And how it is, it caused an hysteria almost, you know, calling yeah. it riots, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so definitely, um, I see that, you know, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, because, you know, black aggression is, black aggression is not the same as other racial groups. It is just always framed very differently. And it's always, it's, it's a thin line for, and this goes for black men and women. It's a thin line between me being assertive and aggressive. Like, I, I don't have to do that much to be considered aggressive. And it's happened even, even in meetings, even in things in my personal life. I just raise my tone slightly. People are like, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, why are you attacking me? It's like, did I say anything? I, I don't even think I mentioned you. So I get read very differently because, again, all these subconscious ways in which these racial tropes are embedded deeply embedded into all of our psyches it's not just and i and i and i say this point because you know i wrote this book for the general audience because just as uncle tom is used by another black person toward another black person the general public the white public is just as invested in uncle tom as well but they just might not be aware of it and I had someone say to me earlier that the minute they saw that my book was called Uncle, they knew exactly what it was about. Whereas maybe someone who is not black, they might not initially know what it's about. They might be like, oh, uncle, is it about an uncle? <laughs> like, what is it about? Whereas most black people, as soon as they see uncle, like, okay, I know what that's about. They just know. 
and it doesn't even matter what their ethnic background is, African, Caribbean, African, Canadian, it really doesn't matter. They know. Right. Um, amazing, Cheryl. I'm, uh, I'm checking the time and, you know, we were supposed to, you know, finish around 2.20, but this discussion was just absolutely brilliant. So thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much for being here, you know, accepting our invitation. Uh, no, you. you know, a big round of virtual applause to you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, they say. Yeah, and then before I forget for folks in the audience, our next event uh, will be on November 5th. Uh, it will be a panel discussion this time uh, titled Educating Artists in 2020, What the Pandemic Has Told Us with Julia Brooke, uh, Colleen Renihan, and Ben Sinitzer. So we all you know, hope to see you there as well. Again, thank you, Cheryl. We really appreciate you. No, thank you so much for having me. And please, everyone, February 2nd, 2021, get that book. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait to read it and teach it, as Karen said. <laughs> yes, and, and you know, I, you know, if you went to this talk and the book comes out and you read it, you can please feel free to email me. I'd love to hear thoughts on it for sure. Awesome. Thank you. All right. Thanks, folks. Bye, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences.